Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, a member of the World Business Academy's Board of Directors, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's president and founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on March 21st, 2018. Today we'll be discussing the good, the bad, and the very ugly of our current political economy and where we see it heading in the medium and long term. We'll cover cryptocurrencies and why they're interesting, and we'll discuss an essential topic that does not receive enough attention, the world of socially responsible investing and how it has now become mainstream. We'll end with advice for staying safe financially in these turbulent times. Uh, Ronaldo, thanks for joining me. Uh, where should we start here? Well, thank you, Matt, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. Uh, first of all, I just I really appreciate that we get to do this every month, and um, I'd like to be a better uh, correspondent, quote unquote, uh, as time goes on, and hopefully I will be, because so many of these things we talk about change with such rapidity that it's almost like the show I would have done a week ago, I'm not sure I'd still do if I did it tomorrow. And I think that's a symbol of our times. And, and, and just to, to lead out with that, I just would like to say briefly, the very famous Greek philosopher um, once uh, declared that, uh, and his name was Heraclitus, that <clears throat> change has been here forever, right? Change is the one constant. And so Heraclitus observed that if you put your foot in a stream, and a second later, it's a different stream because the water you put your foot into has now gone downstream. And so that that flow of life, literally, which is the flow that begins with birth and ends at death, that flow that envelops us, that's normal, that's natural. What is not natural is the speed of that flow. So if Heraclitus had been looking at um, a tsunami when his foot was in the water, he'd had a whole different reaction than the reaction he had when he put it into a reasonably moving stream. Matt, we live in a time where the stream is just moving so fast, it's overtaking our ability as humans to deal with it. And as a result, we're finding ourselves in more and more perplexing situations. Every once in a while, and through an act of bravery usually, we, it, it, our attention gets refocused. It's almost like the mirror gets shattered and we can see through behind what's, what's really behind the looking glass, uh, to use a, a metaphor from Lewis Carroll. And what we see behind that mirror isn't particularly attractive often, but it's what we need to deal with. Uh, in that sense, I want to pay homage and really my respect to the students in Florida, in Parkland, who basically decided to shatter the mirror, who said, you know, uh, this is not normal. Again, the, I think their mo motto is hashtag never again. And one of the young people who started that protest movement um, observed that every single high school senior today in America was born since Columbine, meaning they were born in a time when going to school put your life at risk. And they're saying never again, this should not be. And so whatever we as adults did to let this happen and why we chose to ignore it happening and why we tore it, chose to look the other way and what the defects in our political system were that permitted us to authorize the use of military-style assault weapons in grammar schools, whatever we did to bring it to that state because the speed of change numbed us 
into somnolence, into into, a, into a, almost a half sleep. Whatever we did, they broke the mirror and said, "Time to wake up." We're looking behind this mirror, and what we're seeing is an extraordinary dysfunctional system, and we will not take it anymore. So my hats off to the Parkland students for having the courage to step up and say some things. Shooting kids in school with AK-47s just isn't acceptable. And why we permit it, and why we permit assault weapons at all in our society, when there's no sporting purpose for such a weapon, is a question we have to ask ourselves as adults. And then to the deeper question of how has our politics evolved such that a small group of manufacturers, basically weapons manufacturers, are able to control the politics of a nation where I think something like 80% of the public believes that assault weapons should not be in civilian hands. I'll end with this observation. No civilian believes they have the right under the Second Amendment to a machine gun, to a bazooka, to a tank, to a shoulder-fired rocket, or to an F-16. So you're not entitled to any weapon you can dream up. You're entitled conceivably to weapons stored pursuant to the Second Amendment at the militia, which if you know your history in American history, the militia they were referring to was a red brick building in um, the middle of the colonial settlement of Williamsburg, Virginia. And what they wanted to do is to make sure that they could keep their weapons there so that they could run from the fields and their plows to grab the weapons and be able to defend any invader. That's a huge stretch to the Second Amendment as it's currently enforced, but even that stretch doesn't include machine guns, I believe, or AK-47s. So I just want to thank them for helping to break through our sonambulance and ask us as adults listening to this show, what other shibboleths, what other things do we take for granted that we've allowed to just happen do we need to confront and say, wait a minute, never again. I think that's a great departure point for the show. Yeah, Ronaldo, thanks for that. I think that it's really interesting too because I don't think this new generation has a, a name for the generation yet. And if I, I would propose the acceleration generation based on what you're saying and kind of the trends, right? They're going to be asked to deal with an incredible and amount of, of, of complication and acceleration for all these trends that are happening, not just climate change and not just the internet revolution that continues to connect us more deeply while also posing some real threats and, and question marks. But basically everything is on a, on a, on a straight upward trajectory um, and they're dealing with it really well so far. Uh, but I think that this is this is what we're watching. You know, what, what, who are these kids going to become now that they're becoming adults? Yeah, I, I think that's really uh, – and, 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 and what can we learn from them? Because what they're doing is they're helping to set the agenda for a better conversation. And it's much broader than guns in schools. It's much broader. So I think that's probably where our show is going to go today is to this broader set of questions. And I won't be, you know, I don't want to belabor it further, but I do, I do think it's worth observing that there are, you can, when you accelerate, because you have to, because you're dealing with an accelerated rate of change. So you have to accelerate. In other words, if you keep processing information at the same speed, when it's coming at you at 100 kilobytes instead of 10 kilobytes, you're going to get swamped. <laughs> There's a condition, a disease I call inundata. It's when data just, just swamps you. Well, if you accelerate to deal with that condition, which you should, because you can't stand still, if you see that tsunami coming in your Heraclitus, you better run the other way. Don't worry. Don't, don't worry about the change. It's too much change happening too fast, and you have to deal with it. In the context of modern-day America, and particularly the economy and the society that gives rise to that economy, it's incredibly critical that we accelerate 
towards what we want to be, not just accelerate away from what we find no longer acceptable. That's where I think this generation will have its real opportunity. And frankly, where we as adults, who have not done well by them at this point, where we can now match their courage with our own and start looking at the picture of what we want to create, the world we want to live to our children, not the world that we've allowed to be created or co-created because we weren't paying attention or we weren't dealing with the speed of change. Yeah. Well, let's circle back to that a little later in the show, Ronaldo. I think that's a really good point um, and something that pairs well with the rest of the show. Uh, but let's start at the kind of nuts and bolts of the news and what's going on uh, domestically. Uh, the, the Federal Reserve just announced today before we went on the air that they're going to be raising interest rates a quarter of a point, and we'll think they're going to continue to do so two more times this year. Uh, that doesn't really square with your thinking on the economy, and I want to see what you, you know, what, what your reaction is and, and where we're headed. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the number one most important question. What, what, what is it they're looking at, and what am I looking at, and why? So what they're looking at, and this is such a fundamental analysis, the Fed, and, and, and you know, I'm an economist by training, so to me, I look at the same stuff they do. The challenge is they are making, and so is Wall Street at the, at the present moment, all the fluctuations, the volatility of Wall Street indicates that some people on the street are beginning to get the message. The, the commonly understood opinion is that the economy can be just fine, it's going to do just fine, even though the society is in shambles. Meaning that you can have the economy distinct from the society that it, it gives rise to it. So the economy is one thing, and the society is another, and they're separate. And that's just not true. That would be like saying Nero could fiddle and Rome could be burning and the economy would be just fine in the morning. It won't be. In fact, Rome was burned out. Now, what's happening in the United States today is that we have now given rise to a level of political um, ignorance and of uh, political uh, in a way such that we actually think that everything can be going crazy in our socio-political structure, the society, and our economy is just going to be fine. When I know for a fact that what's going on in the economy affects society. Example, economy strong, Trump does better. Economy weak, look out Donald. Conversely, I believe that as society continues to, in some ways, warp itself, it's got to have an adverse impact on the economy. Now, if that's true, if it's true that the economy and society are interrelated, and by the way, I don't know of any major economist that would disagree with that premise, where the disagreement comes is that I believe that the level of dysfunction that we're currently sustaining is more than enough to kick the economy to the side. Other economists think, well, we'll skate through. It's almost like that, that old joke, you can whistle past the graveyard. You know, the truth is, the amount of damage that our society is doing to itself is already starting to have an impact on the economy, and I predict will have a greater impact in the months ahead. How do you know that? Well, you know for a fact that the disequilibrium between wage gains since the 70s for the average person, which have been flat, versus income accumulation by the top 2%, which has been astronomical. There's an assumption that can continue on. How do you know that assumption? Look what just happened with the tax bill. It generated tons of benefits for the upper 2% and almost you know, a tiny trickle for the, for the middle class. 
that means you're not feeding enough money into the consumers. Because the people in the top 2%, you give them an extra dollar, it just goes in the bank or some investment because at the end of the day, they got plenty of money to live on already. A dollar doesn't affect them. You give a dollar to someone on the street or frankly to a blue collar worker, they're going to spend it right away because they need it to pay the rent, et cetera. I was at an interesting conversation last night with Jeff Greenfield, the national commentator, in which I think he reported that that, the, that if you had uh, the average family was asked whether or not they could come up with $400 in an emergency and half the people said no. Well, think about that. And, and, and so it, it, it might have been smaller, it might have been like a third, and, and if they said $1,000, it went up to 50% or something. But you get the point. The, the idea, and I think Jeff's point well taken is, the average American is not doing well financially, period. And the tax bill didn't make it better, it made it worse. And people are starting to figure that out. How do you know people are starting to figure out? Look what happened in Pennsylvania last week. Connor Lamb takes a, wins a district that Trump carried by 20%. Who were the people who switched from the 20% pro-Trump to the no-Trump? They were people, by and large, in unions. They were middle-class Americans who realized, oh, my God, we got lied to. And they did. So for me, the, the, and if you want, Matt, and I don't know if it's useful because I think people have their own laundry list of what's going wrong in America. But if you take it from the level of social destabilization where we're putting less and less into mental health and we got more people, you know, dropping bombs in Austin, Texas. Or you can talk about the fact that in the entire Santa Barbara County, there are only five beds, five for the homeless that are psychiatric. Okay. You know, it, it's like we've got to start putting our money where our values are. Um, I, I'm supporting yeah. the candidate for office here in California who's making it a plank on his platform that he will rise or fall on the belief that everybody's entitled to free education through grade 14, which would be two years of junior college. I think it's absolutely correct. And when I pointedly said, would you be willing to lose on that issue rather than win by dropping the issue? He said, I'd rather lose on that issue. Yeah. And I think he's right. So I, again, at the education, healthcare, uh, I, I could go on and on and on. What we have is an, uh, a very autocratic ruler who's extremely dangerous. Everybody knows that. It's not humorous anymore. It's not funny that he's quixotic. This is a guy that 32, 34% of the public belongs to a cult that will follow him into the jaws of hell or back. They're, they're really, really, it's a cult. The other 65, two thirds of us are going crazy because we see all the things breaking down and we don't know how to fix them all and they break faster than we can even report them. I, I don't know if it does any good to, because the, the, the news already reports this extremely well. I mean, CNN is full of it every night. I, I just think the issue is, are we willing to accelerate our rate of awareness? Are we willing to wake up faster because so much is happening to us faster? Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, uh, context actually for the rest of this conversation, Ronaldo, because what we're going to focus on are some things that are breakthrough as opposed to the kind of stagnant or, or stuck gridlock nature of what we've been dealing with for the past, uh, you know, 30, 20, 30 years. Um, and, and I think that the, the key for what you're talking about there is that there are a lot of stresses on the system. You know, the, the one thing I would push back with is that our institutions still exist despite an intense pressure on them. And I remain hopeful that, just like we're seeing in Parkland and the, the response to these mass killings, you know, this, this concept of, of a radical breakthrough and a real change in, in consciousness that leads to a change in action maintains 
uh, as as the potentially most powerful force that humans are capable of. And, you know, your point is really well taken. There's a lot of problems. But just like we're seeing with these young people on this one issue, uh, and just like you're talking about with the, uh, the, the, the turnaround in Pennsylvania, if we get the vision right, and if we get the morality expressed correctly, I think that there's a huge majority support for doing some really smart things, including investing in social programs for the future, but also all the uh, climate remediation and realignment of our economy to uh, to actually start closing the gap between rich and poor. So I, I remain hopeful, and I, and I think that you do too, based on some of the other things we talked about before the show. Yeah, no, I'm an optimist generally because I know we can fix it. Uh, and and I, and I believe we will because the opposite conclusion, to paraphrase Winston Churchill in the Battle of Britain when the, when Hitler was about to take over the island, uh, you know, the opposite conclusion, i.e. that Hitler would win, is absolutely unthinkable. So the opposite conclusion that we won't get on top of this and fix it is absolutely unthinkable for my children, my grandchildren, and frankly, for me. But what I'm really getting at here is the disconnect between the, the socio-political affairs of the day what's going on in society, the disconnect between that and what people believe is happening in the economy. Look, the reason the economy is as strong as it is right now is because Obama made some very good decisions for a very long period of time. And Trump came in and inherited an economy that was growing, creating jobs. And um, and as you know, in the first year of Trump's uh, office, uh, we did have a continuing closing of the gap of rich and poor. The, uh, the last year of Obama's and the first year of Trump or the first time where we've seen actually where there's a slight uptick in the closing of the gap of, of, of where wealth is distributed. In, in that income, gap is, right? But not wealth, income. probably. Well, income and, and disposable income in particular, you know, so right. what you got to play with. So the bottom line is that that was the trajectory we were on. We were on the trajectory of a full employment economy. We were on a trajectory of rising wages because we passed a minimum wage law, which is now being gutted. We were on the trajectory of giving more money back to the people by creating a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which already had returned $13 billion to pockets of individual people who were cheated by banks. Uh, we were already on the way to regulating banks so there would be no, weather, no new 2007-2008 crash, and we're now in the process politically of removing those breaks on the bank. Um, you, 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 I could go literally category by category, and what's happening is um, – the inmates have been let loose to run the asylum, so to speak. So what, what that means is we have to be willing to accept that the price of letting this amount of dysfunction invade our socio-political dialogue, the price of that will be the economy. And I'm going to double down and say by the second half of this year, it will be clear we've started the slowdown and we'll be heading towards recession, not towards growth. And I think you'll see it by the second half this year in an increase in the unemployment rate. I think you're going to see it in increasingly uh, activist um, actions for a more equitable split of the pie. Um, I thought you just saw it. It wasn't that the West Virginia teachers, who I think is the, are the poorest paid teachers in the nation or one of the two states that pay the poorest, who were able to extract a 5% increase. That's all. But they they walked out and nine days later, they finally got a 5% wage increase. Can you imagine? Only 5% and they, they had to walk out for nine days. Um, it's like the kids in Parkland not going back to school until they could get the Florida legislature to pass a watered-down gun bill. Now, even as watered-down as it was, it's the first time in 20 years that the governor of Florida or the state of Florida said no to the NRA. Who, by the way, just parenthetically, folks, if you don't know it, the NRA is not made of its members. Plenty of good people are NRA members. It's made up of gun 
manufacturers who drive its agenda and use people basically for their own purposes who like to hunt or who fear for their own protection. So to me, the NRA is an extraordinarily negative force as an organization, even though I think the people of the NRA, probably two thirds of them, in fact, I'm sure more than two thirds, 70% agree with increasing background checks. I know that two thirds of them are more agree with banning assault weapons. I know that um, more than two thirds um, agree on having some minimum age for weapon purchases and closing gun show loopholes. So there's there's lots of things we agree on, even if we're members of the NRA. But what we don't agree on is what the, the, the leadership of the NRA, which is controlled by the gun manufacturers, and what they want to do is take every, every single incident and use it as an opportunity to sell more guns, sell more guns. So what they're doing is they're putting our society in greater risk every day in pursuit of profit. I call that immoral business. Let me tie it to tobacco. I say it's morally reprehensible for a business to sell you a product for the purpose of addicting you until the point of death. In other words, addict you to death. That in pursuit of profit is immoral, it's wrong, and we should not be, condone, we should not be condone, condoning it. Same thing is true about what the manufacturers of these weapons are all about. If they really believe that their weapons are harmless, how come they had to push through a bill which says they are the only product I know of that doesn't have product liability associated, i.e. you can't sue when somebody uses their weapons improperly? They got a blanket exemption from product liability. Okay, I could go on. Why is it that so many of the ads you see on television are from pharmaceutical companies? It's because of the big pharma lobby is one of the biggest lobbies in the country. I, I could go on and on and on. These are dislocations in the system. And for the economy to believe that it can prosper in the face of these dislocations, and I haven't started talking about trade wars, I haven't started talking about um, the, the fact that the United States has blown whatever goodwill it had globally since World War II. I could start talking about the end of Pax, Romana, Pax Americana, which started in 1945 and ended last year. I mean, a lot of things I could talk about that would end up taking the show for the next 10 hours. But at the end of the day, what they all have in common is that these individual instances of sociopolitical instability and corruption are, in fact, what will unwind the economy. The two are not separate. When Nero fiddles and Rome burns, his economy did, too. And we're in that same process now for people to think that it isn't having an effect to have Donald Trump, the president of the United States, doing all the craziness he's doing. I believe two thirds of us now know that we're on a very short leash with the future. Well, Ronaldo, something interesting that's coming out of some of the similar thinking, actually, is uh, is the rise of cryptocurrencies. And I think I want to talk about that next. Uh, you know, people see them as something of a panacea sometimes in terms of uh, disconnecting from uh, a, a financial system that they think is corrupt, but they've also been shown to be gambling instruments for the most part. Uh, the, the evolution of cryptocurrencies, though, is that there's some that are actually really useful and becoming interesting. Do you want to talk a little bit about what cryptocurrencies are and what you see coming there? Yeah, I, I want to share something humorous with you. Uh, I was talking to Christy about the show a little while ago, telling her what we were going to cover today, most likely, and uh, she said, uh, "Oh, that could be. I got an interesting title for you." Cryptocurrencies in a time of kleptocracy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I thought it was quite good. So, yeah, let's talk about cryptocurrency. So let's talk about cryptocurrencies for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's, the, it's a buzzword. People are, you know, people are using it all the time. And, 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 and most people don't really know what a cryptocurrency is. So let me, let me go back to basics. Let me explain. And, and by the way, if people want more than what I'm going to explain, please let us know. We'll be glad to amplify. But for 
purposes of today's show, I'm going to try and make this brief. A cryptocurrency is, is a technique that uses computers to replicate what we used to do with logbooks with pencil and pen. So if you have a logbook, and in that book, um, you log everything that happens, every transaction. Uh, you, you, you bought three years of corn and you sold four bushels of wheat or whatever. What, a, what cryptocurrency is, is, cryptocurrency is, 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 is a computerized log that keeps track of all of those transactions with transparency in terms of the transactions themselves. So you can go back in that log and you can see which transaction preceded, which transaction, which preceded the next. And the theory is that if you do that, you'll have a more transparent way to see what the underlying value of assets being exchanged is. So it's a, now, that's the blockchain that, that kind of powers cryptocurrency, right? Yeah, right. So that's, thank you for saying that. That's called blockchain. So when you hear the term blockchain, what all they're talking about is it's a computerized version of a log, which we kept years and years ago with pen and ink, but now we keep it with digital codes on a computer. And, that, so and it's, a shared, it's a shared system, so anyone can see it and understand and verify that everyone else's copy is accurate. That's right. And you can look, for example, we do this as histor historians. We, we look at old um, ledgers, they used to call them, right? We look at these ledgers to see who sold what to whom, who bought what from whom, et cetera. And there it is in chronological order. And that's what blockchain does, only on a, obviously, a more massive basis and with high speed because it's computerized. And scalable, yeah, exactly. It's scalable. So that's blockchain. That's what blockchain is. And that's the, that's the engine that drives a cryptocurrency. Now, what is a cryptocurrency? Okay. Well, a cryptocurrency is a currency, meaning it's an exchange of value, which is not based on the fiat. So it's different from fiat currencies. Fiat currencies are like the dollar. So the dollar is a fiat currency because it, it, it relies on your faith. If you think the dollar's worth a dollar, it is. When you think it's going to be worth less than a dollar, it drops in value. So the American dollar started dropping recently because people believe we've fallen off our perch. And so the value of the dollar on international markets has started to decline. I predict, by the way, will continue to decline in the future. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about so there's a whole thing about how to play that game, and I'm not urging you to go out and trade currencies, but as some of you know, I do. And um, it's pretty clear to me that the, the dollar peaked, and the, we are looking at a period of stability, I think, for the moment. But longer term, I think you're going to continue to see some erosion in the value of the dollar because of underlying fundamentals. Now, a cryptocurrency can be based on pure gambling. Let me give you an example, Bitcoin. So Bitcoin doesn't really have any bearing to anything. In a fiat currency, when you accept a dollar, you're saying, I believe the United States government <coughs> will stand behind this dollar so that it's worth a dollar. That's the fiat. So it means it's, it's an act of faith. It's, it, by their saying so, I believe it is true. I believe that the, the, the Chinese will continue to, 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 to print and, re, and, 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 and repurchase renminbi or some people refer to them as the yuan. I believe that the European Union will continue to repurchase and process more euros. I believe that uh, you pick your country, of your favorite country. All of those are fiat currencies. A cryptocurrency has no faith backing. It's merely you look at the transactions and you decide what it's worth. So if you have something like Bitcoin, which is not tethered, it's not tied to any specific goods or services in society, it's actually a pure gambling instrument. And one of the reasons why crypto, the Bitcoin went up so high in value so quickly was that the Chinese were allowed to buy 
Bitcoin. And they were otherwise dealing with a restricted currency, the renminbi. So because they couldn't do a lot with the Chinese money itself, they invested in Bitcoin thinking, well, there's a billion two of us and we all like to, to own stuff. So we'll pile into this thing called Bitcoin. And of course they did, and it got up to over $22,000 per coin. And then the Chinese government said, well, we're gonna stop uh, you buying these and selling these. And uh, as soon as the gambling was curtailed, it dropped by more than 50% in value. Uh, I would like to make the argument that you have better odds at Las Vegas, frankly, because you at least know what the tables are, than you do with Bitcoin. And therefore I have always urged people to stay away from Bitcoin. Now on the opposite side of the ledger, so, so on, a, on a continuum where Bitcoin is literally pure gambling, the opposite are what are called vertical cryptocurrencies. What's a vertical cryptocurrency? It's a cryptocurrency that's tethered or tied to some underlying economic reality. So the best example would be Ripple. So Ripple is a cryptocurrency that one buys so that you can transact across borders more efficiently and quicker. Let me give you an example. Let's say my friend Matt Renner uh, lived in Rome, Italy. So what I would do uh, here in Santa Barbara, if I wanted to send money to Matt, I would send him money by way of a, a draft, meaning a, a check or an instrument to be drawn upon. And that would have to be cleared, even if it's done electronically, by the way, it has to be cleared by a money center bank, probably in New York. That money center bank in New York then connects with the money center bank in Italy, Bank of Italy, and that money center bank of Italy then connects with the Banco di Popolo, which is in Rome, and says, great, Matt, here's your money. Now, it's going to take four days for me to get that money to Matt, the way I just described. And at each step, not each, but at several steps along the way, I got to pay a commission. The money center banks both want to get paid for processing this stuff. What does Ripple do? Ripple says, hey, Matt, this is Ronaldo going to send you some money. Here it comes. I push the buttons and 10 seconds later, it's in your account because you've got Ripple coins. And the cost of that transaction is like a, frac a tiny fraction of me sending you a check or frankly, even using a credit card. So since I can save a ton of money by giving Matt my money using Ripple and I can, uh, I can, get, I can speed the transaction time by eliminating the four days to make it 10 seconds, Ripple has an inherent value in commerce. And just to give you some idea how big the value is, at any given time on the globe, there's something like $126 trillion floating around. So if Ripple even takes 1% to 2% of that, you're talking about a massive amount of uh, currency translation. You're also saying it'll destabilize things like Western Union, which used to send money from me to my uh, brothers in Mexico City, for example, if I was Hispanic. Um, so transfer payments now are cheaper and faster and more predictable using Ripple, a cryptocurrency, to send money between countries. So that's really not gambling at all. It's a, it's a service. And that's why Ripple's grown so fast and why it's so uh, solid. And Bitcoin, on the other hand, has had these wild rides of up and down fluctuations because it goes up when people pile in because they're gambling that somebody, the greater fool theory, somebody will pay more for it. And, it's, and it crashes down when they find that people won't. Okay, in between Bitcoin and Ripple are all the variations of blockchain or cryptocurrencies you will find. So you'll find one like Ethereum, which has basically been put together by major financial institutions who wanted to have a piece of the action and uh, have loosely tethered it to trading accounts. 
closer towards the Ripple, which so that's pretty close to Bitcoin, but not quite there. You take other end of the spectrum by Ripple, close to Ripple, and you've got things like, and I don't know if we'll have time on this to go into it, but SolarCoin, which is a new cryptocurrency that's created to get uh, to give a benefit to people who put solar on the roof, for example. So uh, SolarCoin uh, is, is a very carefully thought out, very straightforward application of blockchain currency where the original coin gets issued as green energy gets created. So it, like Ripple, it has a, it's tethered, but unlike Ripple, it's not tethered to a specific transaction. It's one step removed. So I would say it's close to the Ripple end of the line, but not as pure a vertical as um, Ripple. Both, however, would be called verticals. Ethereum and, and, and Bitcoin would not. Okay, great. Well, Ronaldo, I'm really interested in SolarCoin, actually. So if you want to talk about it for another minute or two, I, I'd, I'd like to find out more just because of our shared interest in kind of accelerating the transition to renewable energy. So I, I don't fully understand how it works. Basically, if I put solar panels up on my roof, I get, I get a credit as a SolarCoin yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Basically, they're issuing one solar coin for every megawatt of solar electricity produced. So what's good about that is you know how fast the coins can be created. So somebody can't come along. There's this funny story, Matt. After the Mexican Revolution, uh, this guy asked Pancho Villa, uh, Pancho, now that we've taken over the country, how are we going to pay for it? And Pancho said, no problem. We, we captured the printing presses. We'll just, we'll just print money. And of course they did, and the peso fell to the value of water. I mean, it just when you when you, when you do that to your it's called debasing your currency. When you when you when you just keep printing it and there's nothing behind it, the value of your currency, particularly if it's a fiat currency, drops to next to nothing. Um, so the same thing is true in any situation where you could have an unlimited creation of coins, and it's not tethered or or or, or tied to any mechanism which tells you how predictable it is that there'll be this amount of coin in circulation in the future. So by tying solar coins to one coin for every megawatt, you know exactly how fast these can be created, and therefore you can tell whether or not they're going to be debased or whether they're going to hold up in value. Uh, conversely, there's less gambling involved because you can't create them faster than once than one per every megawatt. So it, it's a much more um, professional and stable way to get into currency. Now, that solar coin, once it's in your wallet, as they call it, is something that you can then use, like any other cryptocurrency, uh, uh, to exchange. And you and you get these currency, you get this solar coin by basically generating solar electricity. And that's that's a quick overview. Uh, I'm sure if people write in, uh, we could uh, we could give them a link uh, to solar coin, and they could read yeah. it to their heart's content. Yeah, the website is solarcoin.org. Uh, okay, you want thank to read you. More. Great, yeah. Ronaldo. Well, that's that's really interesting and, and encouraging stuff. Um, you know, I, I want to zoom back out a minute though because we're talking about energy and talk more about what's going on in some of the big energy producers and where you see the price of energy going and kind of the international picture at large. Uh, especially what we talked about before the show, which was Mohammed bin Salman, uh, his charm offensive and the kind of Saudi charm offensive that's going on. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I think, look, Saudi, the Russians too, but the Saudis are much more sophisticated, realize that the old game of controlling the oil supply is over. So they know that. And that means that the value of what they have in the ground is not going to go up fast as fast as they spend it. 
So Saudi Arabia has got to change its basic economic model. It's begun doing so. Uh, one of the main ways to do it, they felt, was to sell 10% of Aramco, the Saudi national oil company, which is worth a couple of trillion dollars ostensibly. And what they want to do is have Westerners buy that 10%. And I got to tell you, to me, I have no desire to buy a piece of Aramco. So the price of oil, if you've been listening to this show for the last two years, I've always said consistently, couldn't get above $65 a barrel could hover as low as $45 a barrel. How did I come up with that number? Really simple. That's roughly, you're profitable, you break even at $45 a barrel if you're fracking in America, and at 65, you're, you're so horrendously um, successful financially that you'll be, you'll be plugging holes in the ground faster than you can, uh, you, you, you can uh, drink a Coca-Cola. I mean, this is, uh, right now, what causes rigs, if you look at Baker Hughes, Baker Hughes is the famous company that uh, uh, controls drilling rigs, if you look at the number of, of rigs Baker Hughes has out actually drilling holes in the ground right now, it's double what it was a year ago. Why? Because when the price of oil went back up to 61, 62, $63, that brought more rigs out of the, out of the closet, out of storage, so that the people could drill because they knew once they started fracking, they could frack the energy for $45 or so per barrel. If they can sell it for 63, they're happy as clams all the way to the bank. The problem is at $63 a barrel, it doesn't... It's not enough money for the Saudis to pay for their welfare state without going into savings. And their savings account is starting to get hit. So they've announced, they've, they recently sold bonds, which Saudi Arabia never did before, to try and get more money. Um, they're, they're selling 10% of Aramco because they want to be able to take that money. And according to Mohammed bin Salman, uh, MBS, according to him, who's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and runs the country, they want to be able to take that money and start developing alternative energy. Why? Because as long as we can keep fracking in America or other parts of the world and developing oil at $45 a barrel or so, as long as we can keep doing that, the total value of oil on the open market won't go above its current price of the, the range of 60 to 63, $64. It won't go above it. Now, the longer it stays there at that range, the worse the Saudis have to go into savings, and frankly, the worse the Russians have to go into savings. So what happens is, as they are fighting to get the price of that oil up, and they haven't succeeded getting it above 63 in an extraordinarily long time, then what happens is every day, a little bit more solar goes online, a little bit more wind goes online, some volcano gets tapped for geothermal somewhere in the world. So the, the to and then the Chinese, now that the Chinese are committed to getting off of fossil fuel, regardless of what the U.S. does, and frankly, I think the U.S. will continue to deploy solar and wind, despite the Trump administration. I, I don't think Trump's going to stop our, our movement towards solar. He can slow it, but he can't stop it. And so every day, the world's going to become less and less dependent on fossil fuel. Now, because global population is growing, we haven't gotten to the point yet where the total reduction of demand by doing solar and wind is greater than the amount of oil available for sale in a controlled way. So... <clears throat> Supply and demand plays off, and what we're finding is, even though the demand is low, slowing down for oil, it hasn't stopped growing because of population. When the point comes where the demand for fossil fuel, particularly oil, starts to go negative, meaning we have more oil than we need because we put so much wind and solar online, at that point, 
the price of oil will drop initially to 45 and then probably lower than that. So would I want a piece of basically a buggy whip manufacturer when this is 1920 and I see automobiles everywhere? The answer is no. The other reason I wouldn't want it, frankly, is don't let MBS fool you. The most retrograde social country in the world is Saudi Arabia, most likely. I mean, these people are engaging in genocide in Yemen, with our assistance, by the way. They, um, they are basically putting the entire Middle East in the risk of a war between the Saudis who want to drive the Iranians into the sea. So the Sunnis trying to kill off the Shia like they've been trying for a thousand years. Um, they are aligning now with the other Gulf states, which are Sunni. And they're trying to set up a U.S.-Israeli-Sunni alliance so that the Shia, which is Iran, Iraq, uh, and Afghanistan, so that those parts of the world will start to um, be contained and ultimately destroyed. So the Sunni and the Shia have been fighting for a thousand years and it ain't going to stop tomorrow. So MBS is basically trying to get his country increasingly well-armed, increasingly he's engaging in violent acts like Yemen, and increasingly he's, he's leading us in the Middle East to the brink of war. He, they, you know, they may start letting women drive in June, but if you, look at a, if you go on the streets of Riyadh today, you won't see one place in the entire city where men and women can have a meal together or a libation, even if it's non-alcoholic. In fact, you won't find any public place where alcohol is available at all. And you will find public executions are quite common. So we're talking about an extremely you know, uh, kind of a Middle Ages kind of mentality. And MBS is trying to give it a pretty face. So his charm offensive here in the U.S. to get people to think he's a really regular guy, nice guy, is all about selling stock in Aramco. That's what it's all about. Hmm. He already has the Trump administration in his pocket. He's really after the American public. And he's trying to get Wall Street to think they should buy in. Well, that's that's all very interesting, Ronaldo, and also really uh, leads into our next point here, which is essentially: so if you're not investing in Aramco and you're not investing in the in the economy of the past, what are you investing in? And what what is this thing called socially responsible investing that you've been a part of essentially since its inception? Uh, and where where has it been, and, and where do you think it's going? Yeah, well, I. Um... You know, I was really, I just, I think you know this, Matt, I was really uh, pleased and honored uh, to be given the, um, the founders. There's every, every year at our annual convention, there's a session, a plenary session where uh, some founder of the industry is given the, the platform to speak. And I was given that in December of last year. I was allowed to do the founders piece because I have been involved in this industry since inception. Uh, the industry, social responsible investing, uh, which has been around now since the Calvert group started. So I'm going to say that's 30 some years ago. Uh, and and what, it, what it was based upon was the idea that you could make more money investing in companies that didn't do bad things than investing in companies that did. So the original, and they were called screens, the original screens developed for Calvert, ultimately for the Dow Jones publications and uh, Pox, the, the Domini investing, all these different mutual funds came about following the idea and led really by a woman named Hazel Henderson, who, as many of you know, is a fellow of the Academy. I call her my sister for the last 30 years. She's an amazing woman. And Hazel basically constructed a series of screens against which people could determine if their investments were socially responsible or not. Initially, those screens did things like eliminate 
they, you wouldn't buy into uh, tobacco company stocks. Uh, some of those screens were to eliminate nuclear companies. Some were done to eliminate arms manufacturers. So different companies got on the, gotten these screens for different reasons. And the theory was that if you invested in companies that did something useful for society or at least did not overtly harm society, that those companies, by and large, over the long haul, would do better than the market average. And it's turned out to be absolutely true. So from that very first um, uh, that very, very first uh, screen that Hazel did for Calvert, for Wayne Silby at Calvert Group, to the present day, that industry's grown from zero to over $16 trillion. Well, that's, that's enormous. In fact, globally, it's probably well over $20 trillion and growing. And, 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 and there are so many SRI funds, social responsible investment funds, that you see people like Goldman Sachs rushing out SRI funds. You see um, virtually the full panoply, uh, Morgan Stanley, Chase, they all have SRI funds. Why? Two reasons. Number one, customers want them. Number two, they do outperform the market. You actually make more money buying stocks and companies like that. So that to me is the future. Now, I, I, I think what's happening though is SRI investing is going more mainstream. And the way you can see that, if you if people haven't read this, um, they really have to read the letter from uh, BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink. Now, BlackRock is one of the largest investing companies in the world. And in his annual letter to CEOs, which I thought was very interesting, he titled it A Sense of Purpose. What he said is, we're only going to engage with, meaning invest in companies that have some socially response, some reason for existing. He's not saying I only want to have goody two-shoe companies. He's saying... If you're, if you're really harming society, I don't think we want to invest in you anymore. And that's the basic underpinning of SRI investing. So when you see someone like Fink say that, who is considered the quintessential Wall Street giant, it tells you that SRI investing has gone mainstream. And there's one other implication in his letter. In the third paragraph, he points out, as I have always done, that, quote, we live in a time where we also see many governments failing to prepare for the future on issues ranging from retirement and infrastructure to automation and worker retraining. As a result, society increasingly is turning to the private sector and asking that companies respond to broader societal challenges. That's exactly what's happening. And as a result, people are realizing that the political system is now hopelessly messed up. And they're saying to the business community, and the business community is listening, you guys better do something because somebody's got to get this ship out of trouble. We're in turbulent, tempestuous waters, and the political institution doesn't seem to be rising to the occasion. So corporations now are increasingly taking on the responsibilities that we would have thought were strictly the purview of government just five, ten years ago. I think that's a very encouraging sign, and it's the ultimate iteration of socially responsible investing because it's not only investing in companies that are socially responsible, it's getting companies generally to think in a socially responsible way. That's where we're headed. My final thought on that is, uh, as many of you know, the Academy played a role in, in uh, four years ago as co-founders of Just Capital. And I urge you to go on the website of Just Capital. And what we thought of in those days, we, one of the missions of the academy, the third part of our tripartite mission is to 
appeal to the public so it puts its money where its deeper values are. So the idea of Just Capital was, can we give people the information they need to know who the good guys are and why? Like who's actually measuring up to the public's expectations of what a just company would be? And to date, we've done over 74,000 interviews of Americans all over the country asking questions to try and understand what the public thinks is just corporate behavior. And then what we do is we feed that information back to the public. It's having an enormous effect. And when business says things or the administration says things like, oh, my goodness, it's really wonderful. Um, all this money is going to come back from overseas because the tax bill says that these people with hundreds of millions of dollars offshore can bring it back to America and they can give it to their workers. And you hear all these public relations stories. Just Capital did a study of multinationals. And what they found was over 50 percent of all the money that was coming back was going to share owners in the form of stock buybacks or dividends. A tiny percent, less than 10 percent, was going to workers. Similarly, small percentage was going to new capital plant or capital expansion. So that money coming back from offshore, what did it do? It enriched executives. It enriched share owners. It did not enrich workers. So somebody had to know that. And somebody had to have the credibility to say so in a published report, which the New York Times picked up, among others. And by just being a referee that way, just helping people understand what the truth is, we believe we can help conduct improve. So social responsible investing leads to social responsible thinking, leads to social responsible conduct. And we believe that the consumers will help us achieve that because what we're trying to do is give them a scorecard on what they, the consumer, thinks represent just behaviors. So, Ronaldo, I see this world changing uh, along with you, and I think it's a good sign. Uh, the SRI world, as you described it earlier, was focused on what thou shalt not do, right? Like, don't invest in tobacco, don't invest in firearms, don't invest my money in things that do harm uh, directly. And then that, that definition has been widening and broadening to a degree. And what we're hearing, uh, you know, one of the cutting edges is don't invest my money in companies that contribute to climate change. That seems to be one with, that is ripe for uh, just an explosion in people that are interested in putting their money where their values are in terms of climate change. And we've seen that in, in the philanthropic space with many of these big endowments uh, moving out of uh, oil producing uh, stocks and into, uh, theoretically at least, into ones that are actually positive for, for the environment. Uh, one thing you've been pushing among the SRI community is really focusing on that second half of the equation. What do people invest in and how do they how do they actually move their money, not just out of bad things, but into good things? Uh, is there more you can say on that? Yeah, take, take a company like Unilever. So um, I'm, I'm honored and pleased and privileged to call uh, Paul Pullman, who's the CEO of Unilever, my friend. So he, Paul's probably the best known executive in the world who's been working tirelessly for climate change reform. He was the one executive above all others who flew around Paris or ran around Paris to get those climate accords signed. He's, uh, he's constantly leading the charge towards more environmentally sensible policies. He runs his company that way, and he's an articulate spokesperson for the business community in that regard. Well, I believe, and I've now been watching his stock for some time, I believed five years ago that Paul Pullman would produce a better long-term result than a lot of his competitors who don't bother thinking of these issues. And in fact, he has. So to me, 
investing in, in stocks of companies like Paul Pullman's, you're not only investing in products you can care about and feel good about using, particularly as household care products, you're investing in a company who seizes its objective to try and make the atmosphere and the, and the climate better every year by what they do, not worse. So when you look at the what are called externalities, the things that happen that you don't have to pay for. So if you run a restaurant, Matt, and you take your garbage and you dump it in the, in the empty lot next door, you're going to get a ticket, you're going to get fined, and you're going to pay for it because you're not allowed to do that with your garbage. But if you're a fossil fuel company, you can dump that same garbage, which is even more toxic, in the air and pay not one penny to clean it up nor to pay for the damages that that garbage caused. So, there, so that disequilibrium, that unequal playing field has to get fixed. And people like Paul Pullman are leading that charge. So my, uh, my admonition to social responsible investing communities, go find the Paul Pullmans of this world. Put your money in their companies because you'll make more money. So this is thou shalt rather than thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not buy tobacco companies. Thou shalt buy Paul Pullman. And the idea would be you not only would you make more money because long term, I believe Paul's strategy is correct. And so far, it's proven to be true. He has growing revenues and growing profitability. If it weren't true, you want to invest in him because you want to see like a guy like Paul stay in business. But my point is, I think you will make more money investing in Paul than you will in a Ramco. Because even if you have a good brief uptick when the stock goes public and it might jump for a little while, it has to go down over time for one simple reason. Ladies and gentlemen, if you take nothing else from this call, take this one thought. We are changing off of the fossil fuel, planetary fuel system. We are changing off that fossil fuel, planetary fuel system. And as we do so, the people who own fossil fuels will be worth less and less in the future. The people who create energy without using fossil fuels will be of greater value in the future. So there's a lot more to say there, Ronaldo, and uh, we'll invite listeners to write in to us at info at worldbusiness.org with questions or if they want to hear more, anything specific about socially responsible investing. Another important plug, Ronaldo, is the Optimist Daily, which is a daily dose of news that is not just good, but actually solution-oriented. Uh, I read it every day. I know you do too, Ronaldo. Folks can sign up for that at optimistdaily.com, or they can write us at info at worldbusiness.org, and we'll get them signed up. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. You know, you know, Bill, so the reason I think that's so important, Matt, is because you've heard in this call, in this, in, this, in this show, you've heard me talk about many, many negative things. And yet I said half an hour ago, basically I'm an optimist. I think not only we can do this, we will do this. The opposite conclusion is absolutely unthinkable. So I'd like to, I want to keep myself stocked with great positive ideas that I can see at the same time I see the negative ones. And Monday through Friday, that's what I do with the Optimist Daily. It, it tells me at least five things every day, Monday through Friday, somewhere in the world that are happening that are really good. That I go, oh great, we got that right. Oh gosh, look, we did that right. Oh great, that led to that positive outcome. So I recommend to everybody, please read the Optimist Daily. It's free, so there's no reason not to read it. It's really fast, you can read the whole thing in less than two minutes a day. And on top of that, what you'll do is you'll find that it counterbalances conventional media. Why? Because as William Randolph Hearst so eloquently said many years ago, if it bleeds, it leads. Meaning, the lead story on CBS this morning was about a bomber in Austin, Texas. It wasn't 
about some noble act that someone somewhere did that would inspire us. To read about the noble act, you got to go to Optimus Daily. You got plenty of Austin bombers that'll come at you from every direction on conventional media. So even the best of the news media has this challenge where they tend to bring things to the front page, which are the most violent and bloody and difficult and obdurate and negative because it gets our, ju our juices going and we buy the newspaper or we listen to the show or we watch the TV program. So Optimus Daily is the antidote to the cynicism of our time. So you need to have that balance if you're going to be effective in whatever you choose to believe and in whatever way you want to conduct your financial affairs. Finally, Ronaldo, let's talk about recommendations on how listeners can uh, keep their portfolios safe or their savings safe uh, in these kind of uncertain and in-between times. Um, you know, we, I'd love to. We've got very few minutes left, and I don't want to do anyone the disservice of throwing stuff out that's just too casual. We've done this many times in the past. I'll do it again in the future. Uh, I also want to say a couple of quick points of advice when if, if you have a financial advisor or if you if you listen to financial advice, be very careful. Um, just as surely as either the Fed's right and the economy will do just fine no matter what's going on, what chaos is going on in society, or I'm right. And depending on which one that is, huge economic difference. I am glad I have been out of the stock market since last November because it hasn't gone up that much. And frankly, I didn't have to pay attention to all these fluctuations of up 440 points, down uh, down 350, up 200, down 400. I mean, I don't want to be on that yo-yo. I don't want to be on that volatility swing. And I certainly don't want to be on the wrong end of uh, the next crash, the 20 to 30 point correction that's coming. So I'm very liquid right now. Uh, I do have a significant gold holding in, in actual metal itself. Uh, I actually believe in uh, uh, many other things that you can do, which are great investments. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but in a future show, Matt, let's talk about social, uh, social impact investing bonds and what they do and how they work and how you can get a really nice rate of return and do something good for society in the process. Uh, let's talk about investing in companies that pay dividends and how do you know which ones those will be and when a dividend really can be your friend. Uh, let's talk about why I don't want to own government bonds right now. In fact, I don't want to own any long-term bonds right now. Uh, what's that about and why? And it has to do with interest rates going up and the fact that bond prices go inversely, meaning when interest rates go up, bond prices go down and vice versa. So there's a lot of things I don't want to own right now. And to give you advice on what you would want to own, I'd have to know a lot more about your individual situation and, frankly, where you live, because where you live has some bearing on it at this point. Um, that said, uh, you know, please send in your specific questions and we can talk about it. Um, for example, if you lived in a town like Santa Barbara, where I live, if you had some money invested in uh, rental real estate, uh, that's a great short and long term investment. Uh, if you lived in uh, a city that was going through serious deterioration like Detroit was, say, 10 years ago, I'd have told you don't buy any real estate in Detroit. I can make the argument that buying a house in Detroit today is not such a bad investment. So it's about timing. It's about the geography. And it's about your own proclivity for risk. A lot of things like that. Your best bet, however, is to probably be identify yourself with a financial advisor who you trust. And if it's us on this show, send us in questions so we can answer them for two reasons. One, we don't charge, so it's free. And number two, since I'm not making anything from it, I have no reason to distort my recommendations. 
not that other people do, but I think people tend to give advice that makes them money rather than advice that doesn't. That's just human nature. Well, on that note, Ronaldo, thanks for another great show. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. We'll be back at you next month. Thanks, everyone. Have a great month.